Welcome to The Hobbyist. My name is Piers Cooper, and I'm here to talk to you about hobbies, my own and yours. Hello, and welcome to The Hobbyist, the podcast about hobbies and interests. I'm Piers Cooper, and I have a problem. I have too many hobbies. This is my podcast. Thank you for your feedback on the format of the podcast. It seems you're all happy listening to me on my own with occasional guests when I can get them. So I've taken that on board and will be continuing to produce these episodes as I have things to report or can organise an interview. You make all the difference to this podcast. And if you're a regular listener, please subscribe, follow on your podcast app of choice. Leaving a rating really helps with getting the message out. Five stars, please. And thank you to those who have already done so. Today's episode is the long-promised deeper dive into bird watching. Luckily, birding has been my primary hobby recently, so there's a fair bit for me to tell you about. First, a quick update on other things. Hobbies Roundup As I just said, mostly I've been bird watching recently, though the onset of spring means that the small birds I used to watch easily in the bare trees and hedgerows are now no longer so easily visible. Since the last episode, I've been doing some gardening and also woodwork. Where to start? After a strong start this year, the garden has been suffering a bit due to my having a bad back. I simply overdid it, and there's no real excuse for wearing a t-shirt in a freezing gale. I mentioned this last time. That's what triggered the bad back, and that problem ran on for about six weeks. Thankfully, I'm now more or less back to normal. Prior to that problem, I'd discovered the joy of the mattock. Mattocks are like a pickaxe, but have a large curved blade that slices into the ground and allows you to cut through and lift stubborn roots easily. Full-sized ones are hefty bits of kit, and I loved using the one I bought online. I've talked about this tool before, but it bears repeating how good they are. The very bottom of my garden is where I intend to build the garden house to allow me to work from home, but not in my house. My home is very much an office in my eyes, and I need to change that. The new building will be made from wood, naturally, and powered and fully insulated. It'll be roughly eight feet to a side with a pent roof. This is modest, but more than enough for my purposes. I mentioned this last time, but I've given it a budget of about £1,000 to complete, but it might well be more before it's usable. The price of construction timber has nearly doubled recently, and I'm struggling to find both the size I want and at a price that's affordable. Only time will tell. The ground where I'm going to build it has been scrub for many years. I was quite proud of having a wild bit of garden, but needs must, and the brambles really were getting out of control. The mini-matic I mentioned last time is a little tool that makes me wonder why I ever wasted time with a trowel or hand fork for the garden. It's the quickest and easiest tool I've ever used. It lifts weeds and tufts of grass in a couple of blows, breaks up clumps of earth in moments, and can even chop through stubborn roots with the axe end. They cost under £15 from places such as Screwfix, and if you've not already discovered one, I implore you to try. During this time, I also finished clearing the main beds of weeds and raked off much of the bark mulch ahead of remulching those beds, a thing that due to the bad back has yet to be completed. I'm going to mix topsoil with peat-free compost and spread that first about two inches thick, then heap new bark on top. I'm hopeful this double enrichment will let the worms break down the heavy clay soil more quickly than at present, 
making the ground better drained and also holding moisture should any sort of warmer summer arrive this year. That does seem to be in doubt. I have a number of perennials to plant out once this is completed, and hopefully this weekend, I've taken a day to make it a four-day one, will afford me the opportunity. Now, you may have noticed a change in sound quality for this podcast, and that's because of the woodworking. I say woodworking, but it's been very mixed media. I've built a curved wall diffuser and recording booth. This means I no longer cover my microphone with a blanket to reduce room reverberation, which led me to nickname this technique ET after the bicycle basket and blanket sequence. I looked into rock wall diffuser panels, but reading the instructions on the packaging and not liking the risks in poorly ventilated rooms, I decided to take a chance and instead use carpet underlay. I was able to buy six metres of this in a roll, about five feet wide, for under £30 from B&Q. That's a DIY superstore here in the UK. As it happens, this chance paid off. The diffuser is made from two pieces of curved 15mm OSB spanned by ten broom handles. The underlay is then looped over these to create a waved form, and this in itself more than halved the reflections in the room I use as a recording studio. I thought that might be enough, but after a few experiments I still wasn't happy with the sound quality, so we went on to stage two. The booth is made from 9mm MDF, the lower section cut to an elongated semicircular arc around 3 inches deep, and the upper remains a segment, albeit with large circular holes cut in it to reduce weight and reflections. There are wooden laths connecting the two together, and then each side of the curve is covered in a single layer of underlay that is held on with upholsterer's pins. This leaves a gap between the two which insulates the sound. Some ridged acoustic foam tiles line the inside of the top, and I laid off cuts of underlay on the roof of the booth. Since it sits on my desk, I have a folded woolen blanket as the base of the booth. If you position the booth directly in front of the diffuser, bingo. It works really well. Total cost? Under 90 quid. Admittedly, I did already own a 14-inch bandsaw, jigsaw, cordless drill driver, drill bits, pliers and sundry other tools, but the construction is fairly straightforward. If you have the space and want a cheap booth, I recommend you give it a go. I've also decided to try my luck at getting some voiceover work, so I've signed up with an online voiceover job site and been submitting some demo auditions to see what happens. I nearly had something first try, but I wasn't the right fit in the end. It's quite exciting to try something completely new, and I'm very green at this type of work, so it's been almost a vertical learning curve. For the past week, most weekday evenings, I've been applying for one or two jobs as they crop up. I've heard it can take over a hundred auditions to get a job, and I'm miles from that, so my will is still strong, but time will undoubtedly tell. I would also like to do some narration of audiobooks. ACX, the Amazon Audible platform, is the most popular, but their terms and conditions have made me seek experience before I go down that route, so I've signed up to LibriVox. LibriVox is an online platform that takes out-of-copyright works and narrates them, then releases them back into the public domain. It's unpaid work, but a great place to start on that journey, so I'll be looking to find some time later this week to narrate something. Right, on to birdwatching. This time I'm running the ten things past myself. I should point out I'm constantly learning about new birds, their habits and how to spot them. I'm not an expert, and don't claim to be, because I've been properly birdwatching for a little more than 18 months, and there's so much to know. I'm doing my best here to relate how I've gone about learning this hobby, so if I make any mistakes, they're through my relative inexperience. I learn something new every time I head out. It's a rewarding pastime. Ahead of the ten things, I'll update you on my most recent birdwatching exploits. 
I have been out most days I can to watch birds since the last episode. There have been some highs and lows, and I spent rather more money than I anticipated in the quest for better viewing. The first thing to report is that I've started to fully appreciate the ridiculous differences in the scale of birds. I do wonder if, much like fish, there is no such thing as a bird, because when you go from a wren to a swan, that's a hefty multiplication factor. I've been looking at the small as well as the tall since March. I took a week off in early April and spent most of it out and about learning about new birds. RSPB Neen Washes is a fascinating place. It's set well back from anywhere you might recognise as welcoming and is inaccessible to the public. That might sound bad, but there is a small car park and a flood bank that runs straight for several miles across the fen. Beyond this on one side is farmland and on the other, marsh. I'd found this spot by googling local bird reserves and it seemed promising. The drive there from where I live is about half an hour and easy going, so I went several times over my break. It proved to be very fruitful. First day at the reserve I saw a glossy ibis from the car. Thinking I couldn't better this, I continued along the embankment and saw my first shell duck of the year, a small cluster of them showing in a flooded field. Looking around further, I saw a great white egret casually dipping in a pond alongside a grey heron, and thinking I was done, saw a couple of western marsh harriers too. I fell into a companionable silence with another bird watcher who was there, and when I commented upon the great egret, he asked if I'd seen the cranes. This blew my mind a little. I spent last year with common cranes on my to-see list. I eventually saw some cranes at Pensthorpe, but these were in captivity and didn't in my view count. I knew they were breeding in the wild in East Anglia, but thought my chances of seeing one very slim. Much like the kingfisher, when I found cranes, they were almost on my doorstep. It turns out what I'd thought were distant heron were in fact cranes, and when it was pointed out that unlike heron they fly with their necks outstretched, the penny dropped. I was lucky to see 14 on one day I visited, and I believe they may have been nesting, so fingers crossed there will be young there very soon. These are beautiful birds, up to four and a half feet tall, and with impressive wingspans up to eight feet. The group that was at Neen Washes was impressive, and I feel slightly privileged to have witnessed them there. On the way back from one viewing session, I happened upon a tiny marsh tit, another first for me. It's a spot I'll return to in future when the weather improves. Whilst I was there in early April, it was freezing. I then moved on to Deeping Lakes, one of my favourite spots. Following a fairly quiet session watching the sand martins nesting in the special bunker they have for them, I encountered the noisiest small bird I've ever heard, the Chetty's Warbler. It sounds akin to two or three large marbles being clacked and scraped together through a megaphone. It's like an enlarged wren, and I only caught glimpses through the branches of a shrub. The call and song are unmistakable. I've since encountered a couple more, but never so closely. Quite a wonderfully exciting moment. On a return trip, I fell into talking to an old hand who pointed out a common ringed plover to me, quite a small bird and almost comical in walking action. The same day I encountered nearly 20 yellow wagtails on a distant bank. This same experienced watcher allowed me to see a common greenshank as well as reed warblers for the first time. Thank you. Out for a walk one day in late April, I heard my first yellow hammer of the year, the a little bit of bread and no cheese call distinctive in the evening breeze. About a mile further on, a pair flew past me, making it a confirmed sighting. I do love these birds, as they were one of the first I learned to recognise when I started bird watching. 
One evening early this month, I was back at Deeping Lakes and fell into chatting with another birder and he showed me the local hobby, little ringed plover and common sandpiper there were that day, the latter two being first for me. In fact, I did around 20 new birds to my life list since the last episode, a very fulfilling couple of months. Two spotting sessions I must tell you about were properly close and exciting to see. The first was at the back of Marham, where a call from a hedgerow attracted my attention. I didn't have my binoculars, so I had to step very slowly toward the hedge to peer in at the bird I could see hopping about inside. It poked its head out and gave me a long stare. A lesser whitethroat! Such a character, it almost flounced off having had its fill of me. The second happened last weekend. I'd been out very early and seen the Drake Ruff at Deeping Lakes around 5.30am. I'd been advised that at the back of Maxie and Etten was a good place to see birds, so I took a diversion on my way home to test out this theory. I parked in a lay-by and walked up to one of the footpaths I'd seen from the car. There wasn't much to see from there, so I left and walked back up the road to a parking place I'd passed on the way in, which seemed to be a fenced-off car park. Immediately it was clear why this is popular. I saw a turtle dove, male and female yellowhammer, a pair of linnets, and a small group of reed buntings in the space of only a few minutes. Then came the charm. Walking up, I'd spied a pair of medium-sized greyish birds about the size of a chicken. I'd not been able to identify them from so far away, and they'd vanished before I could get my binoculars to my eyes. Happily, I needn't have worried. They were red-legged partridge, possibly one of the most beautiful birds I've ever seen. The female walked out from the hedge and down the bank to my left, followed by the male who paused to check me out. I did have my binoculars ready this time, and even though it was barely 15 feet away, I focused in on what must be some of the most complex plumage patterns in existence. On the back of this, I now have a second favourite bird to join the long-tailed tits, the red-legged partridge. It may be common, but its beauty is anything but. Finally, I upgraded my scope a couple of weekends ago. The weather was grey and horrible, and I'd been wondering if my Vanguard Endeavour HD82 wasn't in fact a rare, really good one. I'd become rather pleased by this thought, and watched a few videos on the subject to try to prove my point. I'd had a look through two scopes earlier this year whilst chatting to other birders. The first was a 65mm Swarovski, which was brilliantly clear and sharp, which had started the upgrade process in my mind. The second was a Vortex Razor. Now I'd looked through the vortex on one of those rare warm days, and with the heat haze it was looking through, I'd thought it no sharper than my vanguard. I went to Spy in Norfolk to prove to myself that I didn't need to upgrade. The team there are exceptional and bent over backwards to help me out, letting me directly compare my vanguard with a Vortex Razor 85 and a Swarovski 65 like I had tried at Deeping Lakes and been impressed by. At first I struggled at minimum zoom to see any useful increase in clarity, but as I got my eye in, it soon became apparent how superior both the other scopes were to mine. The Sparrow I had to reject because I simply couldn't align my eye properly in the eyepiece and kept getting blackouts, curves of darkness that interrupted my field of view. When my eye was in the right place, it seemed almost as bright as the 85 Vortex, and this was on a grey, cloudy day, but even swapping it for the wider eyepiece didn't help and the blackouts were still there. After long deliberation, I coughed up and bought a new Razor 85. I love it. Where my Vanguard's clarity went off a cliff after 35 to 40 times, the Vortex is almost equally sharp through the zoom range, and visibly brighter and sharper throughout. It wasn't cheap, but Spy let me trade in my Vanguard, which helped cushion the blow. If you're up that way, or happy to buy optics on the internet, I reckon as a retailer, they're hard to beat.
Right, on to the ten things. The ten things. Ten. What is my hobby? Well, it's bird watching this time around. I travel around my local area and keep an eye out for birds as I do so. Of course, it's not limited to this as birds are everywhere. You see them all the time and it can be quite distracting. Nine. When did I start doing this? Well, I suppose all of my life. I was born in the 70s and grew up in the 80s, and back then we had no internet, and all reference material was in books. I seem to recall winning this form prize at school one year, and used the book token from this to buy a guide to birds. Without binoculars and limited by my ignorance of where to spot birds, this was a rather stillborn interest. I was rather muddle-headed back in my teens and lost interest quite quickly. The change came for me after I returned from ten years living in Essex, and my father had become an avid recorder of bird visitors to my parents' front garden feeders. It was only when I realised they could recognise more birds than me when it started to pique my interest. I'm a stupidly competitive person, so it frustrated me, but I wasn't that interested. Around two years ago, I was watching Spring Watch, and on the back of that visited the BTO website, filled with new interest. Eight. What first drew me to this? Well, like I say, the BTO website after viewing Spring Watch. I wanted to know more, and their website and videos drew me in. I joined there and then and have been a member now for two years. It took me another few months before I really started to get into actually going out birding. I think I was held back from getting out there by my lack of knowledge. I didn't want to be shown up in front of other, more dedicated watchers. I know better now. You can throw yourself on the mercy of the experienced birders, and they're only too happy to share their knowledge. It's probably the friendliest hobby I've ever taken up. Nobody I've met is snooty, and they all want to share the excitement of seeing something rare, interesting or beautiful. Often all three things at once. Once I started to recognise more than the basic garden birds, I wanted to know more, and in the way of things I then invested in new binoculars and started taking it seriously. 7. What do I most enjoy about it? Well, two opposites, the way it relaxes and unwinds me, and the excitement. I find only a few minutes out looking can reduce my stress levels markedly. I know for those not involved, it might not sound like birdwatching and excitement go hand in hand, but let me assure you, it's gripping. It can be seeing a bird for the first time, putting it on your life list and year list. It can be seeing something for the first time that year. It can simply be observing the behaviour of birds, spotting something in their actions you'd not spotted before. For instance, little ringed plover in common with little egrets do a little one-legged dance in the shallows to stir up invertebrates from the silt. The walk of the little ring plovers endlessly amuses me. It's like they're treading on hot coals, constantly beating out little steps. The long-tailed tits flit about endlessly and their high-piercing cries can disorient the unwary watcher, seemingly coming from everywhere at once. Starling juveniles are perfectly capable of feeding themselves, yet catch foods off their parents long after fledging in independence. Just this morning I saw a pair of great-crested grebe with four tiny chicks. One by one, the mother gathered them up, and they then heaved themselves onto her back to nestle under her wings. The last one was really struggling, and I was willing it on for a few minutes as she swam off and it, half on her tail, tried to keep up. Eventually it made it to safety, but it was in doubt for a while. I find the birds endlessly fascinating. Their plumage markings are incredible. Red-legged partridge may be common, but I saw one up close to the week, not 10 or 15 feet away. What a bird! The feathers and colours are a riot. There's something in every bird to admire. A month or two back, a juvenile sparrowhawk was learning the ropes in the back gardens of my road. On one occasion, I heard a commotion with the songbirds and looked out the window to see the sparrowhawk rising up slowly, having grabbed a robin. It climbed up toward and past my window, and I could see the little bird in its grasp. It was breathtaking. 
Another thing is that the birding world is so welcoming, and I've already mentioned this. I love how I can ask what to a seasoned birder must be a really obvious question, but get a serious reply. They want to share the knowledge, and I've been astounded by how helpful everybody is. It's a fabulous world to enter. I love learning about new birds. There are so many resources these days, it can be a little confusing, but I primarily use the Collins British Bird Guide, an app on my phone. It pulls everything together in one place. You can work out what an unidentified bird is using the search function and entering the details you've observed, then making a selection from the list it provides. If you're still in doubt, it has videos of every bird and samples of their calls and songs. I can't recommend it too much. It costs about £10, and were I more widely travelled, I think I'd cough up for the European Birds version too. That's around £15, but they're simply the best resource I've tried. Identifying a new-to-me bird using the search function gives me a thrill every time. 6. What do I least like about it? Wet, cold weather and early mornings. It's early summer and the mornings are very early if you want to see things that others might not. I told you I'm competitive. Last weekend I was out on Sunday morning at Deeping Lakes at 5.30 in the morning. I'm very fond of sleep and I generally dislike leaving my bed before I'm good and ready. A bright clear morning can get me out of bed against my own wishes. There's a fair bit of standing still, so you have to wrap up warm for mornings all year round. I'm prone to catching a chill in my muscles and this bit I dislike. I also hate getting sopping wet. A car is a must for me when bird watching. However, many of my fellow birders suffice with a bicycle, each their own. I like being able to retreat to the warm and dry. 5. What's a typical session? Well, I'm quite impulsive and unstructured about how I go birding. I'll be bored or wake early or just have the urge to get outdoors. When I'm working in the back bedroom, I keep an eye out whilst on calls and often find myself half listening to something whilst I peer through my spare binoculars at something in mine or my next door neighbour's garden. Often at lunchtime I'll just wander to the fields at the back of my house and take my binoculars for a stroll. A couple of minutes walk and I'm in the scrubland by the brook and start to feel myself unwind. A short 15 or 20 minute session can make all the difference to my working day. Generally, if it's the weekend, I'll just pick up my sling bag with binoculars and scope inside and head out to one of the local hotspots. I'll check the WhatsApp group I was recently added to by Will Bowl, a locally well-known birder of huge experience. There's a large group of birders and they post their local spots so others can get a chance to do the same. If there's nothing of note, I'll head out generally to Deeping Lakes and then come back via Etna Maxi Pits. I'll spend anything up to an hour or more at each location, so I have a decent chance of seeing anything coming through. That's if the weather holds, of course. I'm starting to learn the names of a few of the regulars, and we wave or have a chat. It's a peculiarly sociable pastime for one that's quite a solitary pursuit. I start with a look around, generally, seeing what the weather's like and if there's anything overhead, anything unusual obviously happening. I'll have binoculars at the ready to help me zoom in on anything that catches my eye, and I'll make a thorough sweep of the area. I've tried different methods for this because the centre of the eye isn't great at spotting motion, so you need to be employing your peripheral vision. I slowly sweep the bins up and down while scanning left to right in the field of view with my eyes. At the moment, this is the best way I've found of spotting smaller birds, particularly in fields or on islands in lakes. If I see anything I want to see closer, I'll get out my scope. You don't need a spotting scope by any means, but once you have one, they change the way you enjoy birding. They can be bulky to carry, particularly the tripod, so buy a carbon tripod if you can afford one. They're a lot cheaper than they used to be, and they're worth the investment. Scopes will get you really close to the action. Typical binoculars will bring you between 8 and 10 times closer, whereas a scope will get you 20 to 70 times closer depending upon the eyepiece. With decent kit, you can see things you have to guess at with the binoculars. As I say, a scope is a worthwhile investment once you're sure you're going to be doing birdwatching regularly. 
I'll watch the birds until I think I've seen everything there is to see of interest. If you're there midday, this can be quite quickly, as the birds tend to change more frequently in the morning and the evenings. At the weekend, on a nice morning, I can lose track of time completely. Once I've noted anything new and checked the area, I normally walk back to the car, binoculars at the ready in case anything pops up. If I've been out all morning, starting early, I might have a nap before getting on with the rest of my day. Four. How do I find time for it? Well, if you can see outside, you can birdwatch. I make time at weekends, but during the week if I go for a walk, I'll pick up my binoculars and take them with me. Even outside gardening, they're generally close at hand. You don't have to find time, it just happens as a part of your day. Lockdown's been a blessing because I've had fewer social commitments to work around and it's made it really easy to head out for a session before or after work. Now things are heading a bit more back to normal, I'll have to plan a little more around seeing friends and family, but it's really easy to make time. If you're interested, you're never really not birding. If you're out and about or even just staring out a window lost in thought, you can be birdwatching. Three. Barriers to entry. Well, there aren't any really. Young or old, fit or infirm, anyone can go birdwatching if they're interested. There are vast resources out there now to help with your knowledge, and once you have interest, it can grow easily. I'd say a limiting factor can be the cost of decent kit, but start small. You can buy a half-decent pair of binoculars for under £100 and go from there. If you have the money, the sky's the limit. I looked through a pair of Swarovski binoculars the other day at £2,500. Scopes can be much more. I couldn't justify that kind of money, but the image quality was amazing. I'd recommend buying second-hand from a reputable seller like a shop, and you'll do all right if you can't afford new of what you want. The good thing is, if you buy well, the kit will last you years, and what might seem like a big investment can truthfully be a bit of a bargain over, say, five or ten years if you're using the kit most days. Try to avoid getting sucked into upgrading regularly unless you know your kit is not up to scratch. I'd say upgrade once after your starter kit, but spend some money and you'll not regret it. Two. What clubs or associations are there? Well, there are two main ones in the UK, alongside joining your local wildlife trust. The first is the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, which owns many reserves and may be the first name you think of when birds are mentioned. The second is the BTO, the British Trust for Ornithology, which conducts a lot of the science in the field. I chose the BTO because of the regular magazine and the chance to get a scientific journal for my monthly sub. They offer lots of chances to get involved in surveys and citizen science and would be my recommendation if you're interested in that side of things. One. I have 30 seconds to sell you my hobby. My time starts now. Birdwatching is a simple pleasure. You don't need fancy kit to do it, though if you can afford it, it will really help. The pleasure gained from watching birds is worth 10 times what it actually costs. It's a stress reliever, it's very relaxing and soothing, and if you lead a busy life, it's a lovely relief valve. Anybody can do it if they have either sight or hearing, and you don't need both. It's both friendly and welcoming, and one of the best uses of free time I've found. If you have a chance to get into bird watching, do it. You meet people, get some exercise, and learn new things every time you go. Try it! I'd normally round up by giving my opinion on whether I think this hobby is for me, but I think you can tell that anyway. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, follow, and comment on your app of choice. I'm always happy to hear from you, so email me at contact at thehobbyistpod.co.uk or through Twitter at thehobbyistpod, or like the Facebook page I've sketched in recently. Yes, I've given in and set up a Facebook page because I'm going to do more promotional work for the podcast. It's very bare right now, but we'll slowly get filled in over the coming week or so. Until next time, this has been The Hobbyist, the podcast about hobbies and interests. Goodbye! Goodbye!